0: Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology and I'm your host, James Summeru. Hey, really, this is the big one. My guest this week is Dr. Curran Rajan. Eight million, well, over eight million followers across platforms, across YouTube, across TikTok, across Facebook, across Instagram. He has been busting health myths for the public and tackling misinformation. That is his big goal here. He's creating content to tackle misinformation, make the public better informed about their health. And he is pretty good at it things that we talked about on this episode, is clinical influencer, is a doctor as an influencer a brand new public health discipline? Is he actually doing what public health england or any other public health organization could and should be doing it's a question that he answers he's got a view is having eight million followers a duty or a privilege at this point he's a doctor he's got a huge platform he can and say he can say and do anything he wants along those platforms um he's sort of got a duty right does he see it that way we talk about it in episode and what is the responsibility of big tech companies um you've got youtube and what they're doing with the health shelf should tiktok and facebook and instagram follow suit should they be doing all these things too um current's got a view on this and how does he want to make impact in health tech this is obviously the health tech podcast well first of all is he a health tech entrepreneur like do you think of and class youtube and tiktok as tech platforms because they are and he's using them and he's leveraging them to achieve a goal and I guess sell a product of himself and attention, etc. So is he a health tech entrepreneur? Well, maybe, but he's certainly interested in the world of health tech and wants to play a lot more in health tech, perhaps investing in health tech startups and doing all that stuff later down the line. But, um, for me, he's a guy that is in tech. He's certainly leveraging big tech in order to create a lot of impact. Um, he's essentially a media entrepreneur. He's got books, he's got podcasts, he's got all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, this is a really good one. I really hope you enjoy it. Dr. Curran Rajan, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast, mate. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It's been a while. we finally managed to We've get this done. we finally got it done, haven't we? Finally got it done. A few technical hiccups, yeah. but here we are. Super excited, man. Listen, I'm going to read this out because I don't want to get it wrong, but 5.2 million on TikTok, 1.9 million on YouTube. This is as of today, by the way, as of earlier, 858,000 on Instagram, author, podcaster, lecturer uh, at Imperial and the University of Sunderland, surgeon and entrepreneur, which we'll come to, whether you're comfortable or not with that label, but you certainly are in my eyes. You're an overnight success, right? Uh, You weren't around a year ago, but all of a sudden, (laughs) you are. A year or two ago, at least. Um, Mate, tell me your story. This is a heck of a journey. I know full well you do not become an overnight success, especially in this game. So you must have been doing this for a while. And I've read your story. I've seen everything that you're up to or have been up to for quite a while. Um, I've watched some of those very early videos. And it's just incredibly impressive. I know what it takes to get to where you are and not that I've done so myself in a very, very small way on LinkedIn. There's a few people that know me there, but certainly not 5.2 million of them. Um, But mate, listen, why don't you start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story? Yeah, I mean, I'll get to the point about the overnight success, but
1: essentially, you know, my journey begins, this whole journey of how the social media gets started Mm. is due to my interest in acting and performing. And I was always, you know, I would say externally anyway, I'd be extroverted and be comfortable in public settings. And in school, around the age of 11, I got into a drama play. Uh, It was called The Adventures of Gervais Beckett. And it was, you know, this proper old school play. And I played this basically a sidekick of the main character called Chunter. Gervais Beckett, the main guy, who was mm. my mate, Ed, he was acting and he was <laughs> a great um, actor at the age of 11, as good as you can be. And I was his sidekick. And it was basically us two just pretending that we're on a boat and we're here, we're on horse ride, mm. or, you know, we're horse riding and doing all these various things. And that was my first foray into the world of acting and Mm. being in front of an audience. And my parents came to that and it was a big whole school production. And I had to memorize about a hundred pages worth of script. Mm. It was the year of 11. Mm. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of work to do. And I did that and it was a great success. And my drama teacher said, you should do drama, you know, when you go 13 plus and when you go to uni, you should do all Mm. of these things. And I I just couldn't because I knew I wanted to be a doctor and I knew I couldn't do drama and be a doctor. You know, this was my kind of narrow view of the world at this stage. And fast forward a bit later to when I was 13 plus, I didn't really get involved in any plays or anything then. I was more interested in just, you know, slacking off work and, you know, (laughs) doing things that teenage boys like to do. And then at university as well, I got into Imperial College and one of the reasons I chose Imperial was the guy who showed me around said, there's a really great drama society and he seemed like a really enthusiastic guy. And I thought, okay, maybe I can get into drama now. And I got into Imperial and again, a lot of slacking off and just spending time in my room playing football manager on my computer, yeah. you know, and Again, the way of leveraging my kind of interest in performing and scripting and editing and doing all of that backroom stuff, it started in medical school. My fourth year of medical school, I just finished these clinical exams in my third year called OSCEs, you know, objective structured clinical examinations, where medical students are taken through how to do blood pressure, how to examine someone's chest, how to do a suture, all of these sort of basic clinical facets, which you need to learn And passed to be a doctor. When I passed that, the year afterwards, I thought, hang on, there's not a lot of educational material or tutorials online on YouTube that teaches people how to do these examination skills and procedures. So I thought, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I get involved with that? And I didn't really have much filming or editing experience, but I knew I could be in front of the camera doing these things. And I teamed up. With another medical student friend of mine, who's now he's a hematologist somewhere. He was great at editing, but he was very camera shy. And we both combined and we did these things and we edited it and we put it up on YouTube. And I thought, oh, hang on, YouTube, that's a whole weird space for me. And this was back in 2012, the Wild West of the YouTube days. (laughs) It was the bad old days of YouTube still, very early on. And it was great because we immediately saw traction and you get instantaneous contemporaneous feedback from people when you put something out there mm. because it's in real time, it's live and people are like, great, this is really helpful. And what surprised me and really interested me more was how many people it reached across the world. There were people from yeah. Nigeria, yeah. from Azerbaijan, from India, Canada, the USA, Scotland, all watching the same thing. And being relevant to all of these people all over the world, nursing students, medical students, physios, junior doctors in different countries, it was great, and members of the lay public as well just being interested in it. And it even reached the ASMR crowd as well. You know, the doctor examining someone and touching a patient, you know, weird fetishes online, people (laughs) love that. So... That was, 2012 was when I started this kind of social media thing. Before social media was really a thing. Before influencers and content creators were a thing. These were just amateur people posting stuff online and that was what I was. And very quickly, we've built a cult following of maybe 15,000 followers on YouTube in 2012 to 2013. And towards the end of that time, I was getting busy revising for medical finals. I needed to focus on that. The editing took a while. My friend also being a medical student, it took him maybe a month to edit one video, one 10 minute video. So our progress on YouTube was very slow. And actually I had to briefly hang up my boots and took a hiatus from YouTube from around 2014 to 2019. And only very sparingly would we post something on there. And the channel was actually called the Oski Station then. It wasn't called Mm. Dr. Curran. Dr. Curran wasn't a thing until 2014 when I actually became a doctor and Dr. Curran, the internet personality, the person also didn't become a thing until 2020. And I always wanted to find a way of going back into producing regular content. That was always an aim of mine, but I lacked the editing skills to do all of the stuff myself. And I lacked the equipment and the time and all of these other resources. And in 2019, the end of 2019, I downloaded TikTok and I briefly flirted, you know, even before that I was flirting with Instagram. You know, I used to post some medical history content on Instagram because I really loved medical history. And if you look at my early posts on Instagram, I used to talk about all sorts of weird things in medical history. I gained a few thousand followers on Instagram from that. But again, that really wasn't what I wanted to do just on that. And then in, uh, I said, like in 2019, I downloaded TikTok, but I was just a consumer. I wasn't a creator. And consuming is part of a creator's journey to know what your competition is, to know what works and just learning things. And once I consumed enough TikTok content, I thought here's a really great opportunity to make video content, medical education content, Mm. because there were doctors on there already, but all of these doctors were lip syncing and dancing.
0: Mm.
1: It wasn't serious stuff. Why isn't there serious stuff? Is TikTok not ready for something serious? And I started making a few things and they all just fell by the wayside. I initially did try some kind of funny type stuff in line with what was on TikTok already Mm. and it didn't work. And the first sort of funny video I did to get any traction was this video where I overlaid some fun music and I did, you know, how a doctor's handwriting changes. Year one of medical school, perfect handwriting. Year one of being a doctor, slightly worse handwriting. Year 10 of being a doctor, illegible and that video got 70,000 views Mm. and I thought okay so people want something short something snappy and that's what I need to do and after probably posting about 50 videos of not getting anything I happened on an idea from a medical student who was making videos and he did like um you know a series he made three or four videos where it was like strange medical facts Mm. and the facts were fun and engaged me as a medical person, but the way this medical student delivered the facts wasn't interesting. And I thought I could do that a lot better. And I sort of, you know, you could say I stole the idea, but it wasn't. I I I sort of got inspired by it. You know, I called it weird medical facts. I did completely different facts, did it in a completely different way, produced it differently. I was in my scrubs at the hospital after work, before work, filmed some weird things, and just three facts in each thing. So weird medical facts did you know that your stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve razor blades? And that would be one fact, for example, 10 seconds. And I'll do three facts and we'd come in around 20, 30 seconds. And the story of how that originated was I I got that idea from this uh, medical uh, student who was posting stuff on TikTok and then we were just waiting in the coffee room just before the patient was going to sleep before a major operation. And my SHO, my junior at the time said, you know, why don't you tell me some interesting facts, Uh, you know, just to pass the time. And I told him some interesting facts and he was like, I'm a doctor as well, but I actually don't even believe those. Why don't you put it on uh, TikTok? And I did. He filmed me saying these things, put it on TikTok. We scrubbed in for surgery, finished the surgery, came out and was like, check your phone check my phone. And that video that I posted had 100,000 views. And back then, when I only had a few hundred followers on TikTok, that was enormous to me. There's 100,000 individuals all across the world, viewing this content, enjoying it, engaging with it. And a lot of the comments were like, wow, we want more. That's amazing. And I thought, okay. And I kept doing that. And Weird Medical Facts became my first big series, episode one through to 99. People loved it. And I kept doing things like that. The audience, I kept the, see the following count grow. Zero, 500, 1,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, million. And it just keeps going. And you're like, wow. You know, I started with weird medical facts and then COVID hit, sort of realigned some of the stuff I was doing to talk about COVID misinformation, vaccines, mm. that sort of stuff. But the COVID misinformation was the tip of the iceberg for misinformation regarding health online there's misinformation about every facet of health from nutrition to brain health to everything even though i'm just a general surgeon why is a general surgeon talking about brain health well the thing is i'm not talking about brain health to a room full of neuroscientists i'm talking about brain health to the lay public and simplifying the stuff that i can learn and read from pubmed or interesting scientific updates That's how I got started. And you know, none of this was planned, but once it got going and once the door was slightly ajar, Mm. I kicked it wide open Mm. because I knew what worked. And I knew that this is a way to transform public health on a national and maybe even a global Mm. scale, reach new people, improve health literacy
0: and have fun doing it as well. And here we are. That's a man, honestly, that's a beautiful story. And for so many reasons that we talk about this podcast so much, like as you you might have seen, like I interview so many entrepreneurs on this podcast, right? Like some would describe themselves as born entrepreneurs, others born and bred or just entrepreneurs that have been on that journey and just done the thing. Right. But so often we talk about trying and failing and your journey is one of aligning your hobbies and interests with your knowledge and skills and your career failing, failing again, failing again, failing again, staying interested because you're following your interest. You've always known drama and public performance, storytelling, these things form part of your personality. So it's authentic. And I think that comes out, right? Because the authenticity is rooted clearly in what you're trying to achieve. And therefore you don't get tired of failing. You just keep going. And I think that, that is such a classic entrepreneur journey and one that I think a lot of people can glamorize and a lot of people can get tired with all the failure. And I think because you often might not be living an authentic life. You might not actually care about that mission that you say that you care about. Hmm but your goal is to tackle misinformation. Your mission seems to be wholeheartedly to tackle misinformation. So no matter how many times you fail, in this story, you've just kept going. I think there's there's another interesting bit for me as well about like careers in medicine. You're a doctor, I, I used to be a doctor and you'll know we're obsessed with getting points for stuff. We're obsessed with some sort of activity that counts towards something on a piece of paper that someone else is going to validate us for. Whereas in your journey, no one was giving you points at any part of this for doing those videos or just anything on that journey to get you to where you are now. And there's really something in that for me, which is that there's so much reward on the other side of genuinely following your interest, genuinely perfecting a craft and just constructing a life and a career that is around what you're actually interested in. It's funny because, you know, photography, videography like even broadly filmmaking for me and my family and music for me and my family. These are all things like creative interests mm. that like I suppressed massively. When I became a doctor, I used to, you know, bedroom DJ type stuff and DJ the other party at uni yeah, and that yeah. kind of stuff, right? But like, as soon as I came I was like, I can't, I can't do that anymore because it's like, it's too, it's too creative. Like it's not serious enough. Like I'm a doctor now, I've got to be serious. Whereas that's just so incorrect. It's just the doctor and the clinician and... In the modern world, we can do so much and you've sort of proved it right here. So what I wanna ask you about, right, is this goal, this goal of tackling misinformation. Where does this go for you? Like what's the, what does success look like? Like, when have, you, when have you hit your mission? And I suppose a bit of a slightly weirder question is, like in the modern world, is what you're doing basically public health. Are you, have you replaced public health England essentially for educating the public on things they need to know to improve their health? Yeah. So no comment, just (laughs) being very diplomatic there, but you know,
1: in terms of defining success. Yeah. I mean, to all intents and purposes, I've achieved all my goals. You know, Mm. if there were any goals to set to begin with, you know, say I wanted at one point, I said, I wanted a million followers on TikTok. Mm. You know, I've passed that goal. And the thing is, you can keep setting goals and you can keep being dissatisfied once you reach the goal Mm. and you never enjoy the process. There at some point where I hit 2 million on TikTok, then I wanted three, then I wanted four, then I wanted five. And at some point around three, I was just like, if I'm not happy with three, I'm not going to be happy with 10. Mm. So it became less about just purely vanity metrics and the numbers. And actually the change I can cause on a microscopic level. And I'll give you an example. Mm. Yesterday, I went to a big gym chain in mm. London to give a talk to some of the personal trainers there about how to communicate science and health and fitness information to clients and the public. Mm. And before one of the um, you know clients who works, who trains in the gym came up to me and said, I'm a big fan of your videos and I've got 11 year old autistic nephew who had a very difficult time swallowing pills and medications. We saw your video and he saw your video on how to swallow pills, the best way to swallow pills using science. And he followed that and he finds it really easy to swallow pills now Wow! when we watch all your videos. And that's made a huge quality of life impact on that one person. Now that one person, we can't substantiate how much of an impact that is. What is the price of that impact? I don't know. It's priceless for that person. Mm. And that means a lot more than a million views on its own Mm. or 10 million views or 10,000 followers, because you've made change. The point of me as a medical creator online is to enact change. And I've done that on the ground level. That's what I want. I Mm. want it to filter down to the grassroots level and make change. And I've got reams and reams of emails and comments with a similar effect of you've cured my constipation, me watching your videos and making those changes. Or, you know, another one, I got an email from someone who said, I showed my neighbor your video on bowel cancer Mm -hmm. and she went to her GP, got a colonoscopy and they found a polyp, which was precancerous. So seeing things like that is just absolutely huge. And that is success for me. I've already done what I've said. And to your second point about replacing public health, you know, I think social, if you're a medical doctor, paramedical, anything health-related, where you're patient-facing and you're not on social media, you're missing a trick. Mm. GPs, they have very limited time with individual patients. They see so many patients a day, dozens of patients a day. They don't have the time. But social media sits in a place beyond time. You know, it's accessible to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And I like to think of the law of very large numbers when it comes to social media. Social media, you can get a video that has a reach of maybe 5 million people watching it. Mm -hmm. The 5 million people watching it will share it to one person each and then, you know, Mm -hmm. exponentially grows the number of people. You can reach the footfall of that video. And say you know, 10 million people have access to that video via sharing and views. Mm. And it's uh, something on hemorrhoids Mm. or, you know, diet optimization. Mm. Even if 0.01% of people watching that video enact something or make a change based on what you've said in that video, that is still significantly more. That's in the thousands, Mm. which is far more than a single GP can see in a day or even a month. Yeah. So the impact, you know, can't be compared to real clinical medicine.
0: So it's incredible. But it also can't be measured as accurately either. And I think that's quite interesting because you're right, you're making loads of impact. But to my question around like, you know, are you replacing public health England? There's actually no way of us measuring that. And almost the good work that you're doing for the public and their health you're aware, very aware of it, anecdotally, but difficult, difficult to measure, perhaps. So at what point, and level with me here, like, you see, you're seeing that growth, right, across all your socials, you're delivering this information, you're tackling misinformation, and you know, in your heart of hearts, you're doing a good job. At what point does it become like duty? because you've got 5.2 million TikTok followers, right? You've got 1.9 million on YouTube, almost a million on Instagram. That, and you're right, like in the modern world, these these bits of information need to reach the public, right? This, This tackling misinformation is important. We saw it in COVID. It's incredibly important. You own the technological challenge. You you you, you've conquered the technological challenge you own the empty pipes that reach all of these people so what you choose to put down there really matters it seems like so far on your journey you've you've considered it very much like a privilege to be able to do so does it become duty to you at any point does it feel that way at all now do you see it feeling that way
1: I don't see it um, necessarily as an obligation that I must do this, Mm. but I feel that it's an extension of my day job. So as a doctor in the UK, certainly we adhere loosely to uh, guidance from the good medical practice from the GMC. Mm. If you look at that guidance document, and I have looked at the guidance document in detail Mm. and you need to educate patient and promote public health. That is, every doctor in the UK, Mm. if you're in compliance with good medical practice, you need to do those things. And social media does those things to a T.
0: Yes. And the likes of YouTube, the likes of... Well, in fact, let's, let's, let's talk about YouTube, right? So Vishal at YouTube, who you and I both know, has worked really hard to create... The health shelf. He sees that as, I think he sees that as responsibility, and YouTube more broadly see that as re- responsibility of like, hey, we own these empty pipes, and ultimately anyone can put stuff down here. We need to elevate stuff higher than others. Do you do you see like do you see other platforms following suit? Do you have any kind of feeling of what they should be obliged to do? Do you worry about that sort of stuff, or do you just feel like oh, I'm just going to create? Yeah, I mean. You know,
1: these are mammoth billion dollar companies Mm. and who knows what their aims are. I mean, clearly they want to make money. That's aim number one for all of these um, algorithms and big agents. Mm. And they have their own ulterior motive. Mm. They reward creators who can keep users on the platform the longest, Mm. so then they can sell more ads. Mm. And the creators who keep users on for the longest might be, you know, promoting misinformation. They don't really care. And same with the YouTube thing as well. It's great that they're trying to bring this health shelf to promote accurate medical information. I think the aims of what they're doing are great. But in practice, you need to upload proof of your medical license. You can have a medical license and still be a terrible doctor Mm. and promote misinformation. So there are loopholes around this thing, and it's not quite the final version just yet. So, yes, platforms doing their bit helps. Mm.
0: But
1: at the end of the day, people like me and others like me need to be policing other yes. people to an extent. Yes, unofficially.
0: That's a, that's a really interesting point, actually. And let's talk about that because doctors aren't comfortable with the word profit or money, especially when it comes anywhere near their day job, and rightly so. As an entrepreneur that's in the media space that's got the following that you have you i can bet because i've seen you talk about it previously but you you are going to have had offers that will have doubled quadrupled 10x to possibly 50 100x your annual salary to promote something how did how on earth do you go about dealing with that as a doctor being asked to promote a vitamin or something i mean to be fair stuff along those lines is probably a lot easier to just be like there's no way because i've just got too much integrity i don't believe in it goodbye but there's a probably a gray area and then there's probably an area of you know green that you're quite happy to say yes to because it aligns with all your values and, all, and your mission ultimately about tackling misinformation. so what's that journey been like for you because not easy i imagine
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll be lying if I said that there was an opportunity to make money on social media. Mm. Because at the same time, there's a lot of time I invest, my own time, Mm. free time, that I could either be doing extra shifts to earn money or just relaxing. So you want that time at some point to be rewarded. Just like a startup, you don't expect money at the beginning, day one. You know, you invest capital, and at some point... You cross your fingers and hope you get a return on your investment. There's no guarantee of that. But you've got to keep working towards that. It might be a month, a year, 10 years, who knows. Similar to social media, I've done this for free, essentially, for about 10 years. With no return on my investment. A lot of loss. Mm. And now there's opportunity for me to, to me to make money. Mm. I've got a book coming out from my podcast, from YouTube, from people I do sponsored videos for. Which I don't really do a lot of. I think I've done two. So lots of potential to make money. And given my size of following, I probably don't make as much money as I could because I say a no to a lot of things, most things. Just like you said, the things that people approach me about often don't align with my ethos. If it's a diet, pill, some supplement, something dodgy, CBD supplements, I just can't in good faith. Do you get all my stuff? I get asked... I get about ten to fifteen emails a week, more, probably more than that. Wow. in my In my main inbox, I get ten to fifteen emails a week, yeah. and probably double that number to all my junk emails. Yeah. In addition to comments and DMs on yeah. Instagram and other social media platforms, asking me if I would promote this, do this, do that, and I say no to most things. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would rather do opportunities which actually mean something to to me. For example, I, I did a you know, something with the British Red Cross a couple of years ago where they came to my house and I filmed a bunch of videos on first aid.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And, you know, they paid me for that. Mm. Uh, which was, you know, it took a whole day of filming. Um, so, you know, I charged my rate of a whole day worth of filming. Mm. And, you know, they used it to do all of their things on first aid. And I did something else with a charity, which I did pro bono. They wanted to pay me, I said no. Mm. Uh, I did something with... Pink Lady Apples about mental health and fiber from apples, it, again, aligned with what I wanted to. So I pick and choose. And for me, what I like to think about when you're making money on social media is, you know, it, it's that kind of psychological experiment that was, uh, that's you hear about where, you know, the young kids are, okay, do you want one marshmallow now or nothing now and then a few later on? That's the mentality I go with. I want to maintain my credibility and integrity doing what I do, not for any external appearances mm-hmm. or optics. Do what I do, maintain credibility, build a community, and the opportunities will present themselves mm-hmm. as to how I want it. And that's why I've got a book and I can make money from a book. And if I wanted to, maybe if the book does well, I can do you know, live tours with my mm-hmm. book and make money then. I could you know, build a product in the future or build a course or do something that isn't cheap, isn't selling myself, isn't whoring myself out for something that I don't believe in to make a quick buck. 100%. That's, you know, I don't. I never want to do that. And if you want to do that as a doctor,
0: fine. Mm. But if you do something dodgy, I'll come after you. <laughs> That's quite interesting, right? Because so on the, on the, like, I could do a course, etc. When I play that out, because a lot of people when they say, "Oh, I'll do a course, it's a pretty, it, it's, yeah. often, it's just a pretty, easy way to you know make a few quid and you know sell something that people can learn anyway if they just read about it and you're like okay fine whatever but there's something here for me when you say i could do a course because when i play that out in their mind i've like circled it in my notes here we talked about like are you replacing public health or are you contributing to public health in any meaningful way my question is or my thought is play the course out right loads of people do your course on how to tackle misinformation by creating content. This could almost be like a new age discipline or part of medicine. Like you said, in the GMC, good medical practice is in part essentially educating the public. And so could the, could you see a world where this becomes a genuine discipline enacted by those that are the best at it
1: yeah absolutely and you know to elaborate on that point further this is something i've been thinking about and i was inspired by this news headline i saw where Mm. there was a a university in ireland which is offering a social media degree i saw this right and that got me interested i thought okay and i spoke to the uh, so i'm a um, you know senior clinical lecturer at sunderland university Mm. And I spoke to one of the kind of heads uh, of teaching there. And I said, let me teach uh, just one lecture on professional use of social media. You know, let's get... Because Sunderland University um, has multiple disciplines from physios to Mm -hmm. uh, medics to nurses. So let's get all of them in a room because they're all going to be on social media you know, it's a new generation that's mm-hmm. going to be professionals and Absolutely. healthcare professionals one day looking after patients. Let's get them in the room and let me do like an hour or 45 minutes on talking about professional use of social media because it will be very important. And I thought eventually, I told her as well, this could be a module, and maybe even a degree, and I don't know. And without being arrogant, I think I'm one of the best placed in the UK, certainly Factually at the moment, you are, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> to talk about this, because I'm treading the worlds of both social media yeah. and clinical, you know, medicine. Yeah. So, and, you know, in the end of November, I'm going up to Sunderland. Uh, they've booked a 400-capacity um, lecture hall there, the biggest one they've got in the campus, to for me to give this lecture. And I think that'll be the stepping stone to maybe making it a module, a degree, uh, an entire syllabus around that. And that may be a thing that needs to be scaled out to
0: all universities and the NHS and Mm. beyond. That's so, so interesting, man. Let's just briefly talk about, so the syllabus, right, for this, Mm. for this course. One of the key components I think would make up that syllabus is communication style. Because I think what you've managed to do using these, these big company technologies the you know big tech platforms they're great because you can reach everybody but you might not reach everybody you have to almost i was gonna say play the game you don't really play the game with the algorithms although some people do you focus on creating good content because the modern algorithms as you will know will reward individual outstanding pieces of content you can have 10 followers and get a million views you could not do that in the in the content of the past and therefore quite rightly the focus has gone from trying to attract followers to creating good content at least we've shifted more towards that direction which i think is fabulous for the content space So communication style is something that you have done, I would say, expertly. And again, I'm in the content world. Mm. I'm in the communications world. And I, from my perception of it, is that the way that you will introduce medical concepts with a little bit of humor, absolutely no jargon, unless you front-loaded the fact that you are going to put jargon in it or you've signposted what you're going to be talking about, like CAR-T therapy, which is Mm. one of the videos that I absolutely adored that you did, um, because we have a CAR-T client, and I remember watching it going, he's literally explained it. I've been working with this client for two years and haven't explained it as well as he just has in like 15 seconds. So communication style, if we're going to give advice to clinicians to use these tech platforms to try and reach people and do a job for public health, what can you say about what you've seen work. You failed lots. You talked about that Mm. before. What have you seen now that works? What have you failed through? And what would you, what would your advice be for people to leverage technology to educate the public?
1: You know, I think when you're informing someone, they want to be informed without feeling they're being informed or educated. The traditional way of teaching someone is didactic. Mm. You know, someone from a position of authority and power speaks down to someone else. Mm. Social media is kind of reverse that Mm. you know people pick and choose what they want to learn so you need to almost have something that is unskippable Mm. what can you know someone wants to be taught and you watch something that's entertaining that's short that's humorous to the point and it almost feels like it's not learning something it's just fun but you end up learning something and something maybe even mind-blowing from that like the car c thing you know, I, I can't remember exactly what I said in that, but, you know, something along the lines of, you know, this, this could be groundbreaking for cancer. And people are like, oh, what's groundbreaking for cancer? And then, you know, that's the little olive branch in and they go in and they're, you know, they're thinking, okay, what's going to happen here? And then you load it with visuals, you know, something that I've animated and a bit of green screen here and there. And he's got my floating head going around and talking about different things. And then showing some of the science and animating that in a fun way. And I'm still narrating it using just very basic words. Or even if I use some jargon and I basically say this, it was basically the medical version of this. And it's just keeping someone engaged like a story. The oldest mm-hmm. form of engaging an audience is storytelling. If you think about you know, the cavemen gathered around a fire, regaling stories of fights and whatnot, Stories are integral to human culture and history. And even now, the best influencers, Mr. Beast, Mm. what does he do? He tells a story from A to B, and there'll be little journeys within A to B, sub journeys and subplots, but it's still a story, just like a great novel, you know, something engaging at the start to make you pick up the book, whether that's the title of the book or the front cover, you know, that's the opening gambit. And then you read and then you leave breadcrumbs to keep someone going all the way to the last page and there could be a plot twist at the end. Mm. Oh, okay, I want to read the next book. I want to watch the next episode. I want to watch the next YouTube video. It's the same with this as well. I want to follow this guy and watch everything he posts from now on because I loved it. Mm. So... It's not even trying to convey all of the science. It's trying to somehow—how can I take this boring thing and make it an interesting story? Mm. And that's what you know. I think um, being a good storyteller, you will be a good creator. Mm. So think—don't think about how I can clickbait people. Just think about how this can be an interesting story if it was a book or if it was a TV show, but just condensed down to you know sixty seconds.
0: Or if it was a startup pitch to get investment, which is actually where I want to come to next, because so many of those principles matter to the tech companies that I, I know listen to this podcast, the founders, the future founders, the people that have got ideas that are looking to galvanize, a co- like getting a co-founder in or their first hires or all of this can be benefited by by storytelling and I know that LinkedIn is a platform that you're definitely making more and more traction on and yeah. you must be seeing and, and getting approached by quite a lot of tech companies I imagine because you be reaching things that you can do and so you're increasingly becoming part of the health tech world and especially if I've got anything to do with it you will become more of an integral part of the health tech world but clinicians as an audience next you communicate to the public and people and patients and you've talked about some of the principles there, but you are a doctor also. And so many of the startups listening will have, or founders or entrepreneurs and, and people in these companies will have an impression of what they think of doctors or what they think doctors think of tech and all these different things. But as a doctor and as a storyteller, what is the best way to tell a story to a clinician? Let's say you're a, you're a company who needs doctors on board to hire them to do product or to hire them to do this or to get them on board because you want them to simply use the technology. They might be jobbing GPs or surgeons, or it might be a medical device, it might be AI, but it might be any of these different technologies, right? But what, what would you say is the... How would you tell a story to a doctor like the ones that you work with if you were trying to get a technology in?
1: Yeah. So it's slightly different, I guess, when you're speaking to a medical professional or someone with expertise in the area you're trying to communicate versus a member of the lay public. Mm. So there you can be slightly condescending if you're telling a simple story. So you you may need to use jargon. You may need to embellish things a little bit to, you know, make it interesting to that person because they won't be interested in the, you know, the dumbed down simplified version of things. But I think there's different ways and means to target. I mean, a lot of people who follow me are people in the healthcare industry. And I don't necessarily, you know, simplify my videos so much that it becomes non-interesting because we've also got to bear in mind that healthcare in this day and age is so specialized. We're a world of specialists rather than generalists for most things. You know, even neurosurgeons, they don't operate on every single thing. They may be focused on, you know, AV malformations, or interested in, you know, deep brain stimulation. we all so specialised in what we do that actually general medicine and general knowledge becomes interesting to everyone, Mm. unless it's their specific niche specialty, which I'm not going to go into as a content creator. So I think, you know, even the stuff I do on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a more professional network. The same videos, which do well on other social media platforms, do well on LinkedIn. And I give slightly different, more deeper, introspective thoughts on some of the things I'm doing on LinkedIn. Mm. You know, professionals want a different way. I I tell the story of how I started on social media, how I grow on social media, how to, you know, engage the public, how to make good videos, how to combat misinformation. And that's what healthcare professionals like. There's always an audience for anything. Mm. You just need to, it took me a while to tap into LinkedIn to find out what makes it work. And once you figure that out, you can do it. And a lot of that is trial and error. Mm. I mean, I had a LinkedIn account you know, 10 years ago, but I didn't really use it.
0: Mm.
1: I didn't really understand LinkedIn. I didn't understand LinkedIn at all before. But now I'm beginning to understand it. And in, I think, six months of using it, I've, I think, grown to around just under 5,000 followers. Mm. And, you know, not that I'm chasing metrics, but I want to, I've already seen tangible opportunities come my way from just being active on LinkedIn for six months. So what can another six months of, intentional content creation on LinkedIn do. I don't know. I'm excited.
0: Yeah. So I mean it's it's funny because it's just the it's just classic principles, isn't it? Of understand your audience, contextualize the content you're going to send them. And what you're saying is appreciate the fact that they are specialists, appreciate the fact that certain words and jargon are going to be more applicable there. But ultimately it's like everything else. It's actually understanding your audiences. But then yet again and I'm going to come back to this because I think it's so important. You're willing to fail you're willing to fail on LinkedIn because you have, yeah. you said like I did Like I've tried this, I've tried that. And I'm starting to now see that if I do these things, I'm going to get more traction. It's going to build up. And I just think that's, it, it's so important to just keep going back to this, that you are willing to fail. And I think that's a big reason for you striking gold eventually and, and leading to where you are. But along those lines, right of understanding audience, I think one of the really important things to understand is that, For most people, for people that have never set foot in a hospital, what goes on inside a hospital is impossible to know. It's impossible to truly understand your audience if you've not stepped into a hospital. And there are plenty of incredibly talented engineers, computer scientists, et cetera, et cetera, that are building health tech companies, or at least even now thinking about building companies. They might be university. They might have an idea. They might be looking to start something. What should those people know about the average clinician and how much they know or think about tech? So in your view of the clinicians that you still work with, do they care about large language models or AI? Do they know this stuff even exists, let alone want to adopt it?
1: So due to the popularization of things like ChatGPT and BARD, that's probably the limit of most clinicians' knowledge of AI Mm. and language models and generative AI. Mm. And I think most people, the average healthcare worker, be it physio, doctor, nurse, or pharmacist, or HCA, the average person wouldn't really care or know about AI. And obviously, you know, most hospitals use some degree of AI in some of their operative systems, but not anything fancy. And I think there's a disconnect between the clinical world where they don't really know much about this and the potential power of this to enhance what we do in our day-to-day jobs. And also the people on the other side of the fence who are deeply entrenched in the AI world, in the health tech world, in the entrepreneurial world, who may not be active clinicians anymore and who once were and that's why they were interested in doing something health tech related and there isn't a happy marriage between the two sides and you need a happy marriage to have something that really makes a change and although i'm not deeply invested in health tech myself like you said, I have been approached by a few people on LinkedIn uh, over the past few months. And that's something which has interested me because, Mm. you know, I I leverage technology and social media to a great degree on a, on a daily basis. And I'm also, you know, I I work five days a week as well. So I can see how it can fit in there Mm. because I'm seeing both sides Mm. and I'm increasingly more, you know, having an eye cast towards health tech as well. So yeah, I, I think, how do we find a way to bridge the two worlds? That's
0: Mm -hmm. the question we need to answer. Agreed. And I think in part, that's why you're here. I've actually, you know, I've started to cast my net a bit wider for people coming onto this podcast because you're right. I feel sometimes that all I'm doing is preaching to the choir and actually, do you know what? I'm going to come back to something that you said earlier about your, your vanity metrics versus then your actual, like internal motivator and driver. You said you went past the two or three million followers, and then all of a sudden it flipped. Like, hold on a minute. If I'm not happy here, then where am I happy? I think that's interesting to me because I've done what 350 episodes of this podcast. I've grown Somex to the size it is now, and and you know the relative success that we're having there. And it's and it's interesting to me that it's flipping into a point now of like, so what? Because I've I feel like I've done the bit that was that has felt, believe me, every single day, like the hard yards. Like it really has to get some to a point of relative stability across this podcast and Somex and Health Tech Pigeon and all these things that now have audience and they have an ability to make impact that's beyond just let me just tick the box and put content out. Let me just get a new client because it adds a bit to the revenue. Let me just get a thousand more subscribers on the newsletter and, and do this stuff. It's like, well, hold on a minute. Like, you're right. There are, the, the whole point about making impact in this space is that we need to connect these disparate audiences. It's what we've tried to do with our events that we can now lean into more. It's like I'm trying to these podcast guests to lean into it more because I see what you do as health tech. You might not, but it's interesting to me because you're leveraging big tech and you're filling big tech's empty pipes with information that is fabulous to the public and doing a public health job. So for me, it's like public health meets big tech meets impact to the public. So I see it as health tech. And I want to expand that definition because I want the world to see that technology and healthcare can come together to do incredible things because you already are and this is that that's frankly what I absolutely love about it and I think just by us having this chat and just by the people that might come on this podcast afterwards now and like all that sort of stuff like connecting all these worlds you're right is the is the question to answer I think as well it, there's got to be a willingness to do it as well because I think clinicians quite rightly Again, you'll mention AI or this, and they might go, so what? You know, if you put your I'm like non-health tech hat on now, like I am a surgeon, yeah, I'm a contact agent, but you're a surgeon, right? If someone comes to you and just says, hey, we've got this AI platform that's going to help you, you know, clerk your patients better or whatever, like your first mm. thoughts quite rightly are going to be what like is this going to take more time? do I have to learn something like is this going to be nonsense blah 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 like until we actually start combining these worlds from the earliest stage of inception all the way to through product development and everything which i again I know people are trying to do um i just want to I just want to get to the end and I just want to see the results because i i I love it you know um I saw Umang from Microsoft the other day uh he's I think CCIO at Microsoft and he just whipped his phone out and he showed me like the latest like co-pilot that you know he just clerked someone in front of me that I was sat next to you know in WeWork just clerked Malone in front of me and just had the phone listening the whole thing just like recorded the exact history like boom he was like what would you have to do here to correct this and I was like not not, not a great deal and it's like this stuff's available but you know Malone, who, who got clarked, is a med student himself, and he, and he was just like he just turns to me after him and was like, "There's no way that anyone in my hospital would take that." I was like, even though the notes were you know pretty much bang on, And he was like, "Someone would complain about something." Mm. It's interesting, like I don't know, I don't know how to break that, you know, I don't I don't know what the what, what it is that's going to come in, but I know that the more people that can straddle both worlds. I think we can start to have some credibility there. Um, I'm looking forward to getting more interested in health tech for that reason, I think.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like like you said, a lot of the things, although I didn't think of myself as a health tech person, you saying that does make me think about a lot of the things I've done where I've taken, you know, big breakthroughs from startups, from meg tech companies, and explain them to the general public. Not only CAR-T, but also about you know, early cancer screening blood tests, for example. And actually, based on a video I did about that, someone who's a distribution manager for one of those companies in the UK got in touch with me and said, maybe we could do something. And yeah, you know, straddling both worlds does help with that extent. But also to your point about this inertia to change in the NHS and in the UK, I think part of that is down to fear of change, but also because a lot of people don't straddle both worlds. They're not aware of the opportunities outside the rigid structures of the NHS. Mm. So as I get more almost notoriety in what I do, I feel there's more clout, for want of a better word, or ability I have to reach people in higher positions who can make change and who maybe follow me or like what I do And I can speak to them on a level directly without having to send emails to someone's secretary to then get a meeting Mm. and then, you know, to go on a merry-go-round of trying to, you know, go around the houses. Mm. I can directly contact someone who is in a position of power and say, hey, why don't we try and do this?
0: And that, I think, lowers the entry barrier for change. Mm. I love that. So with that in mind, you're a busy man. I know you're a busy man. It's taking you a while to get you here. You're a busy man. And you're busy making impact. You're busy making actual impact. Um, Like we've said, in a very health tech meets public health kind of way. Your NHS job as a surgeon, if you're working the normal rotor and doing everything that you're doing now, you're not only busy, but you must be absolutely exhausted. How are you dealing with that, first of all? And do you have moments of thinking of perhaps leaving the NHS? I know it's a very tough place to work in at the moment. By no means am I advocating that that is a good thing to do. But I'm just interested in how you see that world right now. Because, uh, I mean, I have a lot of empathy, empathy for people in there right now with what's going on. And for someone like yourself that must give a lot of people a lot of hope, actually, for even a side hustle or developing a different income stream or creating impact in a different way, you're providing quite a lot of inspiration probably for what well, I know for a fact you are to so many junior doctors who look up to you. Would you ever leave?
1: Would I ever leave? Yeah, 100%. There is no question that I will leave the NHS at some point. I don't see myself working full time in the NHS, until I'm 65 Mm. or whenever the retirement age will be, you know, in the next few years, I don't know. Because I feel in your lifetime, in everyone's lifetime, you should have several careers. Mm. I wouldn't be satisfied just being a surgeon. I mean, it's a great job and I love surgery and I'm really enthusiastic when I'm operating. I love it, even Mm. if I'm operating till midnight. I really enjoy it, even if it's emotionally and physically draining and demanding. Mm. But I also really enjoy making content on social media and that whole side of things. And I think I would regret not taking that more seriously and investing more time and focus into that at some point in my life. Mm. I have no plans to quit the NHS within the next few years but something tells me at some point I should focus more on other things in my life. And, you know, I don't have any kids at the moment, but at some point I would like to have kids and devote more time to them, just like my dad did when I was growing up as well. Mm. And I don't want to be doing night shifts and late shifts at work and not devoting time to my family. So forget social media for one minute. I... As a junior doctor, I saw some of my senior seniors doing night shifts and then going back home to see their kids. And I don't want to be in that position. Mm -hmm. I want to be my own boss, deciding my own hours. Mm -hmm. And when I have kids, spend all the time I want with them, go on holidays with them, all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think for many reasons, there is, you know, reasons as to why I won't be a full-time NHS surgeon in the distant future. Mm -hmm. But for now... I have to give it credit for the opportunity it's given me, mm. and the training and education it's given me to then allow me to leverage those skills and help other people on social media. Maybe if I was not a doctor, I wouldn't be on social media. Mm. Who knows? So it's because of that NHS credibility that I am where I am at the moment. Mm. So I think they they work together for now, mm. but certainly they do eat each other away at times. It's you know
0: it's like the, um you know like a tug of war between the two. Mm. you have a very entrepreneurial mindset you are for me an entrepreneur with a media company essentially it's just that you're the front of it as well as probably everything else in it give or take what you can ship to an agent in terms of outsourcing some stuff do you take that label do you do you think of yourself as entrepreneur
1: uh i hadn't typically thought of myself as an entrepreneur you know, if you look at the an outdated model of a, or a definition of what an entrepreneur is, you know, you set up a company and, you know, you, you sell a product or you do something like that. And yeah, I mean, if you really go by that definition, maybe I am. Mm. I have got my own company. I do sell something, which is education and myself, my knowledge. So yeah, for all intents and purposes, I am an entrepreneur. Um, but are there other ways I can do other entrepreneurial things as well? Yes.
0: So where does this all go for you? Like when you think of the next five, 10 years, you know, and all the things that you want to be involved with, what, do you have an end goal in mind or do you have markers of success in the future? Or are you at this point just thinking more of the same? I've just got nights next week. Just stop asking me questions.
1: <laughs> you know what? Um, Nothing, I did. I didn't plan too much about my journey so yeah. far. I did have vague ambitions in mind a couple of years ago, a couple of, you know, about three years ago, I wanted to have a podcast. I wanted to write a book and Mm -hmm. I've done those things. So they they were sort of, you know, got nebulous goals that there, and I've reached them. They've become tangible and similar, you know, to going forwards, I'd have a few vague goals. I'd want to continue my growth and my reach online. I want to try different things. Even if they flop, I want Mm. to experiment with a few weird things and just see, just because I feel I'm at a stage now where I have the opportunity to Mm. experiment and try different things, Mm. you know, whether that's, you know, dipping my toe more into the health tech waters, investing in startups, Mm. doing my own startup, maybe making some merchandise, which could help people. There's all sorts of things, you know, and a lofty aim of mine in the next five years would be i'd want to produce full-length documentaries nice um so you know on things like what just like exposés and uncovering yeah you know myths and like nonsense going on in nutritional products or uncovering some dirty dark truth some underbelly of some industry you know things like that yeah um and who that's that's what i want to i don't want to restrict myself to one thing my, my, my brain is kind of split into a thousand different things yeah. and i and each bit of it wants to do something else and i want the opportunity to indulge each fragment of my brain in okay yeah, yeah let's do that let's do that yeah. and even if it's time consuming it just keeps everything varied and fun and again you're willing to fail
0: yeah yeah you're a, you're an entrepreneur mate. you're yeah.
1: an entrepreneur tell me about the book tell me about the podcast So the book, again, was a culmination of a couple of years of work. And Mm. when I was younger, I had, you know, being an author or writing a book was a cool thing. Wow. Like, get a book that's published and people read Mm. it and pick it up. And when, you know, about three years ago when Penguin Mm. came calling, I was like, wow, Penguin? That's huge. I spent my childhood reading Penguin classics and all these books. And it was a no brainer. When they said, you know, we'd like you to write a book, I had to do it. And I had a vague idea in my mind, which then I formed into something solid about what the book would be. Mm. And it took two years of afternight shifts, days off, zero days, weekends, annual leave of just working and writing on that book. And to then see that come together, and I'm still waiting for the final print hard copy with, you know, the matte finish and everything till I can pick it up and hold it it's been a journey. And so the book is basically about, it weaves together my anecdotes from my time as a doctor, medical student, and surgeon with interesting stories from medical history, which is another passion of mine, with me debunking myths, which I do online frequently, with interesting mind-blowing facts, which also I do online, and also providing actionable, sustainable health tips Mm -hmm. and advice. So all of those things which I do online I combine together in a narrative, in a book, and I go through the body in, you know, the gut, the brain, you know, everything. And the kind of style I've written the book is that I've likened it to a clunky, glitchy machine robot. That is the human body and the human body sucks and it's terrible and it's trying to kill us. And we're trapped (laughs) in this thing, which wants to destroy us. And here are the flaws and glitches but here's what you can do to slow down the decay and deterioration of this machine and slow down the process of death. You know, you see so many books, medical books, glorifying the human body. The human body is amazing. There's a million miles of this yeah. and it's fantastic. And, you know, let's wax lyrical about the human body. Yeah. I just flipped that script and I'm like, it's fucking terrible. <laughs> you know, and it's literally trying to kill you. You know, there's, we, our, our body creates cancers all the time and then it clears it up as well. Uh, and then here's how you can stop it trying to destroy you a little bit. Uh, and that's it. And I hope, because it's got a lot of my dark dollops of mm. my dark humor in there as well. And yeah,
0: I just really hope people enjoy it. It's in my style. It's me in that book. I remember being in central London and seeing Sony Music. Dr. Curran started a podcast and yeah. the largest image of you that I've definitely (laughs) ever seen. It was just towering over me in central London. I was like, Oh, I need to text them. I need to get on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Heck of an image and Sony music, man. Like, yeah.
1: I mean, again, uh, something I couldn't say no to at the time. Mm. Um, you know, Sony music is a, it's a powerhouse name in the Mm. industry, in the entertainment industry. But again, it's sort of when you work with big beasts, Mm you may not necessarily always have things 100% your way because there's a reason they're the biggest in the game. Um, So it's, you know, towing the line between working with these mammoths of industry to leverage, you know, your own growth, but also being aware that at some point you need to break away and do your own thing. So... You know, season two of my podcast. I've taken a bit of a hiatus at the moment because I've got so. I've just changed jobs. I've got my book coming up, so there's been a bit of a hiatus. I finished in October, Mm -hmm. my uh, first season of the podcast, 20 episodes, and I'm probably only going to start season two around February. Nice. And you know, there's a good chance that I'll, I'll go it alone in season two because
0: I just want more creative freedom. Of course, but this is again, it's a classic entrepreneur startup journey of. You take the deals that you can when you can make them to yep. get the money in, to give you the resource to exactly. do what you want to do next time and learn your craft, etc. I think that's awesome. Before I let you go, I want to ask you something, which is, I've been a, I've been a doctor mm. and I've done those shifts and I've been that tired and I've tried side hustles in the meantime and I've built Shopify stores and I've done... I've done all that stuff in my free time and I can remember that it's, I could remember how tiring it is and you need to do what you're doing, to do the volume of stuff that I, I mentioned at the start, right? You need drive and I'm interested that when you, when you think about this, You've mentioned your mission, and I imagine like a large part of it comes from your mission. But I'm interested even where that comes from. But your drive, where do you think this drive comes from in you to transcend your tiredness, your hunger, your thirst, your desire for social interaction, your like all of this stuff, which you might well get a lot of from content creation, actually. That might be part of the answer that it does nourish you. But the drive to do all of this stuff, where where's this coming from and, and how is it so sustained?
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say the drive is there all the time. There's moments that's where fair. I just can't be bothered to do anything. And thank you for saying that by the way, because that that's a lot more relatable. Now. Yeah, it, it's not. But, but I would say, you know, perhaps compared to the average person, I do manage to sometimes get more than my fair share done, mm. uh, balancing everything. And that's just because a lot of it is fun. I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't fun. Yeah. Um, You know, sometimes say there's a day where I've just got admin work to do in the NHS. I'm not going to stay till 10 p.m. doing admin work. I'm not going to go above and beyond to do admin work. I will do my allotted thing. But if I would sometimes stay till midnight when I'm operating, because that's my passion. I love operating. Similarly with social media, it's 24 seven. My mind is thinking about social media 24 seven. And if it means hopping on a late night call with someone to Mm -hmm. do a podcast in the U S or coming here on a weekend to do a podcast with you or creating content and scripting YouTube videos till midnight and then recording it at 2 Mm AM just because I need to get it out. I don't mind that because I really enjoy all those types of things, all those various facets of social media and content creation and video making, I really enjoy that. And the day I stop enjoying those things, I'll stop doing it. And right now, everything is still fun. I've been doing it now for the best part of 12, 13 years. And it's still fun. It was fun in those eight years of social media famine where I didn't get any growth. And if it was fun then, it's a hell of a lot more fun now. (laughs) So why would I stop now when I was getting a hundred people watching my videos Mm. or less and doing all of that way back when, when no one knew who the hell I was, you know, except probably, you know, 50 of those hundred views were me and my editor. (laughs) It's so much more fun
0: now. So why would I stop? I love it, mate. You, you are someone that has followed your interests, that loves your craft. You've perfected your craft, you're still learning, you're still failing, you're still trying to get more done. Well, I know you are such a massive inspiration to so many people that want to follow in your footsteps or simply learn from you. You're doing a heck of a job for the public and everything you're doing tackling misinformation. So mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Health Set Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You've been good. I am thoroughly looking forward to you joining the health tech sphere a lot more and seeing yeah. you seeing you around a bit more and the fact that early earlier on you said that you're perhaps looking to invest in some health tech startups now or one day means that i would hide your email from anyone in and around this podcast or else you will be inundated with startup decks and startup pitches um, but mate it's been a pleasure thanks so much for on thanks for having me james hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.